Well, good morning, friends online and friends here in person. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. And welcome to week three of Liftoff. A couple weeks ago, our friend Mike talked about how the Holy Spirit is our fuel source. And he can serve uh, like a massive fuel tank that lifts a rocket out of the atmosphere. The Holy Spirit is the fuel source for our lives with God. And then last week, John talked about how Jesus is the spark that ignites the fuel as we make Jesus primary and as we seek Jesus' presence. Well, today, we're going to look at another key ingredient for a successful rocket launch. You know, when SpaceX prepares to launch a rocket into space, they're monitoring the weather for days ahead of time. And you know what they're hoping for, right? A clear sky. Launch dates are set so far in advance. And you know, for a rocket to lift off, they've got to have a high amount of precision and a really high amount of speed, and bad weather can totally mess those up. And so in 1969, there was a lightning strike just after liftoff that almost ended Apollo, let's see, which number was it? Apollo 12's mission to the moon. Sorry, I'm not a rocket science nerd like John, but... So, you know, if there is any sign of high wind or rain or hail or even just clouds, SpaceX is going to postpone the launch and they're going to wait until the weather improves because a rocket needs a clear sky in order to launch. Well, the early church faced similar constraints. They didn't have a weather problem, but they did face similar barriers to launch. The launch sequence wasn't following the plans the way they expected. The gospel was taking root with people they didn't expect and in places that they never expected. And so, today we're going to eavesdrop on what was probably the most important church meeting ever. It's in Acts 15, and it's called the Jerusalem Council. And the early church leaders were meeting together to try to decide what to do with these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus. How Jewish did they need to be in order to become Christians? Well, as you can imagine, just like church meetings today, there were really strong feelings on both sides of the issues. And this issue cuts to the very core of the gospel, and it threatened to divide the early church. Now, we don't have time today to cover the whole council, but I highly recommend this week reading through all of Acts 15 if you have the opportunity. But today, we're just going to hit a few highlights And so if you have your Bible or your Bible app or your sermon notes page, let's take a look together in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 11. We'll come back and read more later, but we'll start with this. So hear the word of the Lord. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. May God bless the reading of this word. When I spent a summer in college uh, doing ministry in Spain, people there had a very specific idea of what Texans were like. I mean, the most common question I was asked was about my family's horses. How many horses did we own? 
None. Well, do you ride horses everywhere you go? No, we have cars. <laughs> I don't know if they'd watch Stagecoach or Giant one too many times or Tombstone, but they had a very specific idea of what Texans were like. Apparently, to be Texan is to be a cowboy. Well, on mission trips to other places around the world, I've run into the assumption that to be American means to be a Christian. Well, unfortunately, some of the only things they knew about Americans were things they saw on TV. And so they thought all Americans, and by association, all Christians, were just like the people that they saw on Baywatch or on Friends. And that's a scary thought, right? Well, the early church faced this problem of association, too. You see, until now, the early church had been an entirely Jewish movement. Jesus was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. They uh, had grown up following Jewish law. Even the idea of a Messiah who would save, 100% Jewish. So before Jesus, anyone who wanted in on what God was doing in the world had to become Jewish. And there were two big requirements, circumcision and following the law of Moses. Now, can you imagine pulling up to synagogue in your minivan with the family and all of a sudden dad begins to get cold feet? Honey, I'm not so sure about this. Maybe I need to take some time and think. Well, that's what it took to be grafted into what God was doing in the world. So it's no surprise that when the early church began, the Jewish Christians assumed it's going to happen the same way. They had this narrow view that grace is for people like me. It was almost like the Jews were thinking of faith with blinders on. They had this narrow view of what God was doing. What I can see right here, the only way it's ever been done before, is the only option. So they were unintentionally setting up these roadblocks or barriers for people who were coming to faith. In their minds, grace is for people like me. Well, Peter was the first apostle to get up and to speak at this meeting because he had firsthand experience that God was doing something different. We see his story told a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 10. See, after a strong nudge from the Holy Spirit, Peter goes to visit a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion in the Italian regiment, and here's the catch. Cornelius was a Gentile. Now, most of us are Gentiles too, right? Gentile means the people or the nations, anybody who's not Jewish. But Jews don't visit Gentile homes. It's against their law. But to his credit, Peter obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and he went anyway. So Peter preaches to Cornelius' whole household about the saving grace of Jesus. And what happened next was earth-shattering for Peter. Let's see what it says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Well, they were astonished because God was doing something dramatically different. The Holy Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles even before they had a chance to speak their faith out loud and certainly before anyone pulled out a flint knife. But the evidence of God's activity here was unmistakable. And so we're told that the early church leaders, they praised God for this. Now in the early stages, I think the Jewish Christians began to think of Cornelius as a bit of a Baker Mayfield. He's probably the most famous uh, walk-on in college football, right? 
He walked on at Texas Tech in 2013. In 2015, he played for the Oklahoma, he walked on to the Oklahoma Sooners and was a Heisman contender that year. And then later in 2018, he was the first overall draft pick in the NFL draft. And I think Sam and Marlene's dog is even named after him, right? <laughs> so that's huge. How does that happen? He was a walk-on. Well, that's how the early church saw Cornelius. This was a rare exception, or so they thought. But from there, the tide began to turn. A few chapters later, we're told that wherever the missionaries went, both Jews and Gentiles believed. When they returned to Syrian Antioch at the end of chapter 14, right before our text today, they reported that God had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. And that's why Peter opens up the meeting with this testimony in verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So Peter addressed the question that was on all of his listeners' minds. These were God's people, the chosen people, the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. To follow Jesus, everyone else should become Jews too because grace is for people like me. That's what they were thinking. But Peter doesn't use these words by accident. To God's chosen people, he says, God has chosen again. Now, God's chosen people includes the outsiders, the Gentiles. God is throwing open the doors of the gospel message, wide open. So put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish Christians right now. Who is the most unlikely convert you can think of? Someone you would be completely and utterly shocked to see them walk through the doors and start passionately worshiping God together with you. Do you have somebody in mind? Well, this is how the Jews must have felt to see Gentile believers coming to faith. Now, here's the thing. That exercise wasn't really too hard, right? All of us had somebody in mind. We tend to think of ourselves as the insiders. And often, without even realizing it, we take the narrow view. We think that grace is for people like ourselves. But now let's flip the exercise. Now you're the outsiders. Imagine yourself as the Gentiles who hear the message and believe. You're the Baker Mayfield. You're the walk-on. Nobody's meeting you at the door of the church with a flint knife. Nobody's asking you to memorize and follow all 613 Old Testament laws. You are suddenly a recipient of God's amazing grace. Friends, this is us. We are the walk-ons. As we read the next two verses, let's do it from the Gentile perspective. Verse 8 says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. I have to tell you this verse floored me this week. God who knows the heart. God knows all of the selfishness that's in my heart. God knows every time my heart follows after something it shouldn't. God knows all of the envy, the greed, the anger, all of it. But at the same time, God knows when inside of our heart that little seed of faith takes root and begins to grow. And that's all it takes. It's a gift, a beautiful gift. God accepted me. God gave me the Holy Spirit to lead me and comfort me and guide me. And so as Peter continues in verses 9 and 10, I can imagine his voice just raising up to a shout. God treated the outsiders exactly as God treated us. God started at the core of who they were. 
and worked outward, cleaning up their lives as they trusted and believed him. How dare we then try to load them down with rules that even we couldn't keep? As he gets to verse 11, he says, No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now look carefully at what this verse says. At first glance, it looks like Peter has mixed up his pronouns. He's speaking to Jewish Christians. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we are saved just as they are. We're told in the next verse that the whole room was silent. And I'm sure that's partly because Barnabas and Paul got up to speak next. But I think it's partly because they were still trying to sort out what Peter had just said. Doesn't he mean that they are saved by grace just as we are? But finally they realized Peter meant exactly what he said. The ones who saw themselves as insiders were just as much in need of God's grace. The narrow view that grace is for people like me has got it all wrong. Grace isn't just for people like me, it's for me. Insider, outsider, it doesn't matter. I did nothing to earn this grace. I can never pay it back. All I can do is to share it with others. And so now that Peter has blown up their narrow view, he takes his seat. And with that, Peter bows out of the book of Acts. This was a defining moment for Peter. His main legacy to the growth of the early church And Peter has leveled the playing field. There are no two ways to be saved. It's only by grace. But the meeting isn't over yet. There's more to be said. So Peter's just blown up our narrow view. Grace isn't just for people like me. It's for me, and it's for you, and it's for that unlikely person that you thought of a few moments ago. The last speaker, the final authority in the Jewish council, skipping ahead, is James. And James is here to expand our minds even further. So as we skip to the final words of the council, James is going to show us the broad view, that grace is for everyone. Now first, who is James, and why is his view so surprising? This isn't James the disciple. This is James the half-brother of Jesus. I love how Andy Stanley points out that this probably makes him the most reliable witness on the planet. I mean, how many of you love your brother? Let's see a show of hands. All right, how many of you think your brother is your hero? Now, how many of you think your brother is God? That's a pretty tough sell, right? And so James actually was never a disciple of Jesus during his public ministry on earth. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection, when he made a special appearance to James, that James was finally convinced. And now James has grown to become a leader in the early church. But it wasn't because of his blood relationship to Jesus that he rose to be a leader. It was because of his personal character. James was wise, he was faithful, he was kind. And as he became a leader in the early church, in the Jerusalem church, he remained a devout Jew as well. He was well known for following the Mosaic law. So when James gets up to speak, I think the Jewish Christians thought they finally had their man. Now, as I said earlier, we can't cover the whole meeting today, so we won't read all of James's speech. But just to give you the highlights, first, James quotes from the prophet Amos, who confirms what Peter had just said. God is doing something new in the world. It's no longer a Jewish movement. God is going to launch this early church into a global movement, like a rocket that leaves the confines of Earth's gravity. But just as we said at the beginning, that cloudy skies can inhibit a rocket's launch, James sees that the early church was placing barriers 
that inhibited what God was doing among the Gentiles. If God had made a way for the Gentiles to come to faith, then God forbid that the early church should stand in the way. Now, if you remember just one verse from Acts 15 today, let's make it verse 19. Here's what it says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. See, there are all kinds of natural barriers that can keep people from coming to faith. But James doesn't pull any punches. One of those barriers is us. God had thrown open a door for Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus, and church people were appointing themselves as the gatekeepers. Now, maybe it's easy for us to see their error, right? They were talking about circumcision. Why on earth would you set up a surgery room in the lobby of our church and require people to pass through it first before they come in? With 2,000 years of hindsight, we can see with a lot of relief why that was not such a great idea. That was a barrier that needed to come down. But what invisible barriers are facing people right outside the doors of this church today? James says that sometimes our poor treatment of others can keep them from receiving Christ. Are we unknowingly making it difficult for people who are turning to God? The first thing we learn from James's broad view is that we can replace these barriers to faith with open doors of faith. Maybe for many, it's a modern day version of the Jewish Gentile problem. Maybe the faith barrier is a cross-cultural one. And maybe it's a witnessing problem. We hesitate to share our faith with someone from another culture. We might offend them, and so we just don't. Maybe it's a welcoming problem. It can be hard for us to cross cultures to welcome someone who's coming into the door of our church or to ask them to sit with us in worship or to invite them to our grow group. No matter what culture you're from, it takes stepping outside of our comfort zone to welcome and greet someone from another culture, doesn't it? Maybe the cultural barrier is a more sinister one, the kind that's really come out of the shadows the last few years. Did you know that Sunday mornings are the most segregated time of the entire week? How are our words and actions creating a barrier for people, especially our friends of color, to come to faith in Jesus? And maybe the barrier isn't a cross-cultural one. There's lots of other things that increasingly divide us. The gap is growing between the rich and the poor. The gap is growing between Republicans and Democrats. The gap is growing between the young and the old in this digital age. These are true in our country, but they're true for us too. All of these things can tear us apart. These barriers can prevent a clear sky for the gospel to launch. And so how can we overcome these to open doors of faith? None of us want to be the gatekeepers for people who are coming to faith in Jesus. We need James' broad view. So let's throw open the doors of faith as widely as we can. Jesus has poured out his grace freely and undeserved on us. So we freely and generously share that grace with others too. Grace is for everyone. But you know, James doesn't stop here. These Gentiles who are coming to faith in Jesus, they've overcome the barrier to faith and they're coming to faith in Jesus. Well, now they're coming into the churches and it's causing some problems. Because the Gentiles don't follow Jewish law, their customs look a lot more like the pagan world around them. And that's a real problem because sometimes there's a fine line between culture and idolatry or between culture and sin. And James sees the dark clouds forming 
another barrier on the horizon for the early church to launch. There's a chasm between the the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. It's time to open doors of fellowship. Now, one of the biggest barriers that we face to fellowship today is the tension between grace and truth. We picture it as a spectrum, like those lines on a personality test. Are you all grace? Are you all truth? Maybe you're a little bit of both. But John 1.14 tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus was 100% grace and Jesus was 100% truth. Grace and truth are not enemies. They are both essentials. Now, friends, I am particularly concerned about a generation of young people who are walking away from the church for this very reason. Maybe their experience with the church has been full of grace-only people. I mean, maybe that's the nicer view, right? But grace-only people look so much like the culture around them that they end up not being any different from anyone else. Or their experience with the church has been full of people who are full of truth only. They're on the wrong end of a bullhorn where they're being bombarded with everything that they're doing wrong. And there's no way they want any part of that. So they're walking away from the church in droves. We need to open our eyes to this barrier to fellowship that is standing in the face of our children and their friends. The young people in our congregation and in our community are facing challenging addictions and challenging questions about sexuality and a whole host of other issues and how desperately they, like we, need to hear the good news of Jesus who loves them and gave his life for them. But if we can't be full of grace and truth, how will they hear? So James suggests a way forward. They lived out of this broad view that grace is for everyone. And as the skies cleared, the early church began to launch. Now I want to close this message today with a real-life example of this broad view that grace is for everyone. There was a woman who moved here several years ago from Japan. Her husband had work in the United States, and so they came for a few years. And she was not a Christian. In fact, when she first came, there were a number of barriers that stood in her way for faith and for fellowship. They had no faith background. Japan is a very secular country with very few Christians. This family was going to be here only a few years. We all know how hard it can be to sink roots down deep in a community when you're just a short-timer. And she had very young children, which I can attest makes it very hard to get out of the house and meet other adults. But through the invitation of another Japanese friend, this woman began attending English classes at VRBC. Her kids were cared for and loved. She was invited to a simple English grow group where she was taught scripture and the words of God. And then she was warmly welcomed and began to develop friendships with others. And someone invited her to come to Wednesday night and have her kids be in our cool choir club. Well, then as she started attending on Wednesday nights, she was invited to be a volunteer in our children's ministry. As she began to experience the love of Jesus through so many different people, she decided to come and see what it was all about. As she began attending worship and our starting point grow group, she gave her life to Christ. 
Now, a few months ago, we said a tearful goodbye to this friend as she moved back to Japan. But even through tears, we could rejoice because her faith was facing a clear sky. She has this broad view in front of her, knowing by experience that grace is for everyone. And so in a country where few know Jesus, she now has an opportunity to open doors of faith and fellowship to so many others. Now, friends, I can think of no better way than to uh, end this by communion. Can you imagine what it would be like to see that story repeated over and over again? 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Let me read that again. Because there is one loaf, because we all sit around this common table and we eat this bread together, we who are many are one body. We're united in Christ. Or as we like to say at VRBC, we are different together. For we all share the one loaf. Now today, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we welcome anyone to participate who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But before we eat the bread and drink the cup, we'll take some time for self-examination and confession. The Apostle Paul prescribes this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So let's take a moment and confess our sins to God together. Lord, we take a moment now, and as we review the week behind us and even the morning behind us, Lord, we confess to you those things that we have done that we knew we shouldn't have done. Lord, we also confess to you our thoughts and our words and our intentions that were opposed to you or have hurt others. And Lord, we know that we have also left things undone that we should have done. And we confess those to you right now as well. Lord, as we confess our sins to you, we know that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And we thank you for that. Lord, we remember that it was for our sins, that your body was broken and your blood was poured out for us on the cross. We thank you for your grace, as we talked about today, that cleanses us and restores us as your beloved children. May we offer that grace to one another as we share in your body and your blood today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your communion cups. If you don't have one, you can run out and get one real quick. But if you have it, just know that there's a couple different layers to open. So there's a little purple film on the top. You can open it up and get out the little piece of bread or cracker that's on top there. All right, scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
right, there's one more layer of film to open up. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your sacrifice for us on the cross and for your constant and dependable love and grace. Lord, help us to remember that love and grace that was so freely poured out for us. May we live every day with that grace in mind. And may we extend that grace to others as well. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.